Mate, how are you? It is so good to have you here with me for another episode of the Exponential Performance Podcast. Now, in this episode, Lessons from the Lab, we jump into ice baths. Not literally, but we're going to talk about them. Are ice baths actually helping your recovery or are they performance decreasing? We're going to take a look at that. Lessons from life. We're going to talk about how to train effectively with kids. A little bit of an insight into what I have found. And then we answer a question from a listener about protein. Should you be having animal protein or plant protein? We'll take a look at that. And before we get into that, just a quick question for you. If you had one minute to live, what would you do? in that one minute i'll give you some time to think about it while we play the intro and then we'll get back to it let's get into it welcome to the exponential performance podcast join sports scientist and performance coach maddie graham to find out how to train smarter and maximize your performance no matter who you are G'day mate, welcome to episode 9 of the Exponential Performance Podcast. Thank you for joining me, it is awesome to have you here and I hope you had time to think about what you would do if you had one minute left to live. Now the reason I ask this is that just the other weekend I had one of the athletes that I work with randomly ask me what would I do if I had one minute left to live. I sort of scratched my head. I wasn't too sure where they were going with this. Uh, I was kind of a bit worried, actually, because I had been prescribing some pretty hard training sessions, and I wasn't too sure if this was actually a threat on my life. But what they came up with, and it made me laugh to no end, was that if they had one minute left to live, they would do an interval because they said that the intervals that they had been doing seemed to last a lifetime. And it, it just cracked me up. And to be honest, it's such the truth. When you punch out an interval, it doesn't matter how long it is, it just seems to drag on and on and on. Even if it's a 10 second, almost the shorter they are, the harder they are and the longer they seem to go. It's almost like the space-time continuum becomes warped somewhat and it just drags a second becomes like 10 seconds 10 seconds feels like a minute and then as soon as you hit your recovery it's the complete opposite the recovery just flies by and it disappears before you know it so if you were ever faced with the situation in future what would you do if you had one minute to live Jump on that bike, chuck on those running shoes and get into an interval because it lasts a lifetime. I hope you've had a good week and that your training is progressing well. Last week I asked, what do you guys do while you're listening to the podcast? And I had some interesting answers. I had some people say that they were sitting down and listening to it with their family at dinner time interesting dinner time listening but whatever does it for you had a couple of people say they use it on the wind trainer or the turbo trainer when they're punching out some intervals uh, housework and also while they are running and at work so let me know what do you do while you're listening to the exponential performance podcast i would be very interested to know 
want to get to know you better so I can keep providing you useful, practical information that you can use in your training to reach your goals. Final thing before we jump into the show today is if you could, can you please head over to iTunes and give me an iTunes rating and also leave a review over there. This just helps promote this show to get it out there to more people and in the long run this will help with the sustainability of it. So if you could get over to iTunes, give me a rating, give me a review, let me know what you think, it would be greatly appreciated. Now I have shaken off most of my cold that I had last week. I had a few comments actually that uh, my voice sounded better last week, a little husky. So uh, I'm sorry that that's all gone and you're back to my normal whiny little voice, but that's what you get when you tune in. So without further ado, we're going to jump into lessons from the lab today and we're going to take a look at ice baths. Let's do it. In today's lessons from the lab, I wanted to dive into ice baths or cold water immersion. Now, cold water immersion has been around for a long time, and it's been all about speeding up recovery. Because cold water immersion, you know, is often being claimed or it's believed to have reduced edema or swelling, decreases the perception of pain associated with the muscle soreness, decreased perception of fatigue. <clears throat> excuse me, uh, alters localized blood flows, alters localized tissue and core temperature, changes heart rate, reduces muscle spasm, reduced our tissue inflammation, reduced muscle damage and improves range of motion. So that is what people have always believed cold water immersion helps with, but many of these things aren't actually supported by research. And in fact, there's almost little to no evidence to support some of those. So let's take a look at cold water immersion or ice baths and really have a think about how it could potentially help or hinder your performance. So what is cold water immersion? No doubt if you've played a team sport, you've probably done them following training or following uh, games. Or if you're a multi-day endurance racer, you may have used them yourself between days to get ready for the next day's racing. So essentially what it is, is it's, it's a recovery process that involves the immersion of the body into cold water, uh, which is equal to or less than 15 degrees centigrade, or if you're one of our American listeners, 59 degrees Fahrenheit. This usually happens immediately after exercise in an attempt to, in inverted commas, enhance the recovery process. However, cold water immersion at best is only shown to have a small impact on recovery. So how does cold water immersion improve recovery? There's been a lot of research around cold water immersion, but the primary mechanisms for why it actually may improve recovery are still not fully understood. However, the following theories have been suggested. Uh, There's a constriction of the blood vessels. So what happens is the blood vessels get smaller, reducing blood flow to the area. 
there's a pain relieving or an analgesic effect of the cold water so if you've ever sprained your ankle and it's been really sore no doubt you've put cold water put it in a river put an ice pack on it the cold actually reduces the pain sensation by just decreasing the firing rate of the nerves there is a, a reduction in the inflammatory pathways so the swelling that happens whenever you have an injury soft tissue injury that swelling is inflammation adding cold water or ice to the area reduces that inflammation doesn't mean it's a good thing it just reduces the inflammation there's also uh, a hydrostatic pressure so whenever you get into water the pressure that's squeezing on your body squeezes the fluid back up towards the heart and an interesting side note is this is why when you swim you need to go to the toilet or use the bathroom quite often or especially after you finish and this is why if you're ever swimming in a kid's pool you can guarantee there's a lot of pee in it because they the kids can't help but pee because of this effect so what happens is you get into the water the hydrostatic squeeze so the water pressing on your legs or your lower half of your body squeezes all of your blood and all of your lymph back up to your thoracic area into your thoracic cavity and what happens is the baroreceptors in the chest by the heart what those little pressure sensors detect is that we have too much blood because the pressure is increased because all the blood has been pushed up from our lower body those baroreceptors then fire a bunch of different messages off through the body and it stimulates the kidneys to produce more urine to get rid of some of our fluid in our blood our plasma to decrease that pressure so if you're swimming that is why you always need to go and use the toilet and that's why if you are in a kids pool do not put your head under the water because it's probably primarily pee anyway i digress the final reason or the final theory that has been proposed for how cold water immersion improves recovery is simply the placebo effect by getting in that cold bucket or that cold uh, wheelie bin of water you feel as if you're doing something after all the all blacks do it top competitive teams do it so if you're doing it, it probably feels great so while those are the proposed mechanisms does it actually improve recovery let's take a little bit of a closer look so there are a number of research papers out there that show cold water immersion does speed up short-term or acute recovery by decreasing the inflammatory pathways as we talked about however does reducing the inflammatory pathways actually mean you have sped up recovery or are you just removing some of those symptoms of not feeling good and in the end of the day you're just feeling better but you haven't actually physiologically recovered it's kind of like when you have a headache you take some paracetamol and instantly you're in inverted commas better but you haven't actually got better or addressed the underlying problem you've just masked the symptoms of the head pain 
you know, it could be that you were dehydrated, that you had, you know, eye strain from looking at the computer for too long. Those are the underlying problems, but you've just masked the symptoms. Same sort of thing goes with cold water immersion. The problem is, is that if you are consistently reducing the inflammatory process after training, there is a potential, and research has shown this, in both endurance training and also resistance training, that there seems to be some decrease in adaptation over time with this repeated use of cold water immersion. And while this research is relatively new, and we don't know the full extent behind it, it's probably a good thing to avoid following training on a consistent chronic basis, as in using it after every training session. Because it only might be a slight decrease in your adaptation to that training session, but that little adaptation added up over multiple training sessions, multiple training weeks, months, then we start to get decreases adding up over time. So we know that it might improve short-term recovery, as in it makes you feel better the next day, but in terms of actually speeding up your recovery to make you recover better, it may not actually do that, and in fact it may hinder your training adaptations over time so with that in mind here is what I would suggest on the whole I would tend to suggest avoiding cold water immersion following day-to-day training sessions so in your day-to-day training avoid cold water immersion because of that potential to reduce training adaptations with chronic use with that in mind I'm not hating on cold water immersion I think it has its place and this is where I think its place is in training if you're doing a big block of training say you're doing a little bit of a mini training camp where you're doing sort of like a Friday afternoon, Saturday, Sunday, sort of like a big three-day training phase, and you want to put in an abnormal amount of work during that weekend to stimulate a super compensation, then getting up the next day before your, you know, your another big session after you've done a big session, it potentially could be a good time to have those legs feeling good again so you can go out and hit it a bit harder. One or two cold water immersion sessions after training isn't going to have a big effect given that your overall training volume is going to outweigh the negative effect from the positive adaptations that you get from the training. So you could potentially use it after really big training sessions when you want to back up the next day with another big training session. Now normally if you just let your body take its natural process what you would find is that the next day your legs are sore you're probably not able to produce as much power or push yourself as hard because the body wants to force you to rest a little bit but we want to overload the body to get that super compensation so we're hitting it again we want to be able to push hard so feeling good that placebo effect 
a reduction in inflammatory process, a reduction in delayed onset muscle soreness, we're going to be able to push hard in those subsequent sessions. So I definitely think it has its place in little mini training blocks or training camp environments. So the other place I would recommend it, if it is practical for your situation, is multi-day racing. So if you have got to back up day after day of racing, let's say it's the coast-to-coast two-day race, or whether it be a multi-day cycling event, multi-day mountain bike stage race, multi-day running ultramarathon type thing, when you have to get up in the morning and back up after a big day of racing, you want to be feeling good. You don't want to have extremely sore, tired legs. And cold water immersion could help this. It helps by reducing that inflammatory process, as we talked about, reducing that swelling, and that in turn reduces the delayed onset muscle soreness, that tight, stiff feeling that you get. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have recovered any better, as in there's still the muscle fiber damage, there's still the depletion in the muscle glycogen, it's not magically going to help you recover faster, but if you feel better, you're going to perform better. So if you feel better, you're going to perform better. So on multi-day races, I would highly recommend you getting in some cold water immersion following each day of racing, whether that be sitting in an ice bath, whether that just be sitting in cold water. For example, the Pioneer multi-stage mountain bike race, you can just sit in the lakes and the rivers that are nearby, in the coast to coast. If you're doing the two-day race, as soon as that mountain run finished, get yourself into the river, or they do have a recovery tent there with inflatable little pools, but get yourself in the river where it's cold, get some cold water on those legs because it is going to help reduce that inflammatory process, reduce that swelling and reduce that muscle soreness the next day. It might only be by a bit, but if your legs feel better, you're going to be able to perform better the following day. So there you have it. There's a little bit of a summary about cold water immersion. Ideally, I would suggest avoiding it during day-to-day training and recovery and just let your body take its natural process slash make sure your training program is scheduled with enough training load and adequate recovery and then to be used in training camp slash training blocks where you want to be able to back up day after day of hard training where any potential decrement in adaptation is outweighed by the increased training volume And then finally, I think where it's ideally suited to is multi-day racing or if you're a team sport athlete in a tournament setting where you've got to perform day after day with the idea of reducing inflammation and making you feel better but not necessarily recovering, in inverted commas, more optimally because the underlying problem is still there and you're going to be making it worse that day with more racing. But if you feel better, you're going to go better. So there you have lessons from the lab done. 
In today's lessons from life, I wanted to tackle training with kids. So coming up four and a half years ago, I went from having all the time in the world to train. All I had to worry about was uh, a very flexible business that I ran, obviously exponential performance coaching and spending time with uh, my wife, Lily. So we went from having pretty much nothing to then having uh, a new child and I had signed up for the biggest endurance race that I had ever done which at that stage was a 1200 kilometer self-supported mountain biking uh, event. Uh, Since this time we've added another child to my family. We've got Elsie who is now four and a bit and then Merritt who is two and a bit. Uh, We've got a bigger mortgage and the time for training seems to be getting less and less and less. I get lots of questions from people about how Do you best fit in training for the long events that I do um, with, you know, my other commitments? So what I wanted to do in today's Lessons from Life is just give you some tips and hopefully some practical hints and things to be aware of when you are training with kids. Now some of you obviously won't have children so this may not apply but this also applies to those who are very busy in terms of their work life. So I guess you could term this training with kids or a very busy job. Now I think number one and I put it at number one because I think without this you can't really do anything else and that is partner support and it truly is number one. You really need your partner on board with what you're doing otherwise it makes life very hard. And I think one of the most important things is communication. Um, Got to have that good communication so that everybody's on the same page with you know where you're going and then Obviously, you've got to make some compromise so that everybody is is happy. For me, you know, I was a part-time stay-at-home dad as well. So being uh, self-employed, I can be quite flexible with what I do. So I would often, you know, take part of the day shift and then, you know, get into some work at night, but then also balance training on top of that. And I think one of the big things is that you really need to change your mindset about how you approach training. Just because you used to train a certain way or a certain time or with certain people, now you might not actually be able to do that. So I think a change in mindset is critical. It doesn't mean that you're not going to be able to train just as effectively, but you're going to have to do it slightly different. And I think you need to be quite confident in your change of approach because you'll see all of your other training partners that you used to train with, with, say, before children, out there training like you used to. And you may get a little bit, you know, of FOMO, fear of missing out. But if you have confidence in what you're doing and what you're doing is actually good, then you shouldn't have a problem. One way I tackled this is getting up and training in the morning. Now, with our first child, Elsie, I used to be able to pretty much bank on 100% that she was going to sleep till 7.30 in the morning. So if I got up early, there was a really good window of opportunity to train in the morning get home as everybody was getting up 
and help out with the morning routine without any problems. And 7.30, you know, you can get up and get a good couple of hours of training in before 7.30 without too much problems. But with our second child, Merit, and when I signed up for the tour of RTRO, which is the 3,000km bikepacking event down the length of New Zealand, we had Merit. And she was a bit of a different story. She had no schedule. She was up and down at all different times of the night. And bloody, as kids go, I guess, the only thing you can count on is that things are going to change. The only consistent thing is that it's consistently going to change. So I went from early morning trainings, which I found work really, really well for me, to not really being able to do them because either we had a really terrible night's sleep so I was too exhausted to get up in the morning, or two, Merritt was up super early after feeding all night, so I'd take over the early morning shift to give Lily a little bit of a, a lion or a bit of a rest. So what I ended up doing is training for the Tour of Aotearoa is I ended up doing a lot of night training. So I would put the kids to bed around about 7.30, and then I'd go and get on my bike and put in a, in a relatively big session in the evening, and what that would mean is that potentially I wouldn't get as much sleep as I needed or optimally would, but in the morning I had no other option but to get up because there was a screaming baby there to deal with. So rather than having to use my motivation to get up and get out and train early, it sort of made the decision for me. Now with Early morning trainings and night late night trainings are a little bit of a double-edged sword and meaning that they are going to take a big toll on you because you are going to be losing some sleep at some stage either end of it, usually. If you're getting up early or going to bed later, you're losing some of those sleep. So you have to be a little careful and you need to make sure that you balance your recovery accordingly so that you don't get too run down, you don't compromise your immune system too much, and just so that you are actually adapting to the training that you're doing. Now, the other time that I found really effective for training was lunchtime. And depending on you know your work and what else you've got on, a bit of a lunchtime smash can be really effective. In the early days when we just had one kid, what I would often do when I was looking after her in the afternoon and she went down for her afternoon nap, I'd have the wind trainer set up, I'd jump on the wind trainer, I'd have my iPod, uh, potentially my computer set up in front of me for a little bit of entertainment while I was smashing out some intervals. But I would also have the baby monitor set up in front of me so I was able to see how she was getting on with her sleep. And because I didn't really have much time, we couldn't really bank on how long she was going to sleep for, I would just use as much high-intensity interval training as I possibly could. And this works really well for those that are very busy at work as well. If you have an hour lunch break, you can sneak out for a 30-45 minute session a lot of people will look at that time frame and say, it's not even worth going and getting my gear on if I'm going to train that much. But if you utilize that time that you have, it can be very effective. And if you don't have time for those longer sessions, 
then splitting up your day to have three smaller sessions can be a very effective way of training. If you are multidisciplined, say a triathlete, that obviously works in quite easily. Swim in the morning, run at lunchtime, potentially bike in the evening. But also if you're a, you know, an endurance cyclist or an endurance runner looking to get in a long session but you don't have, uh, say, let's say a three-hour period to set aside for that particular session, you can just, you know, hit a bit of time in the morning, let's say an hour in the morning, hour at lunchtime, hour in the evening, or, you know, even less than that, 45, 45, 45. And what you'll find is that that really starts to add up to become a very, very effective session. Not only that, but you even start to add on that added benefit of having um, muscle glycogen depleted. So training on depleted muscle glycogen, and I think we've talked about that in previous episodes. I'll go and hunt that out, and I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes over at the Exponential Performance Coaching website, so you can go and listen to the stuff about about um, training with uh, depleted muscle glycogen. So if you are creative, you can definitely get in some really good quality training, even if you've got a busy family life with kids and work, or whether it's just a busy work life. One way that I really like to uh, get my training in is by incorporating my family as well. Especially your sort of low intensity training can be quite effectively done with kids. Most weekends we head out for a family hike or a tramp um, and often it, it includes the kids being in the backpacks and us carrying the kids up a hill. And while it's quite low intensity, it is a highly effective, you know, aerobic or strength endurance type workout. You know, walking, pushing a buggy, running, pushing a buggy, riding with the kids in a, in a trailer, all those things, while they're not as you know good as if you were just to head out and do your specific training, it is a way of getting some good low-level aerobic conditioning in while spending time with the family, which at the end of the day, for me, is, is really, really important. The final thing I'd say is, you know, you really do need to reassess your goals. You need to have a, a good think about what's important and where you want to invest your time. Because at the end of the day, that's all we really have, really, isn't it, is our time, and then we decide where to put it. One of my big goals in life has been, you know, an incredible parent. I don't exactly know what that looks like, but I have a feeling um, that a good part of it is uh, time and spending time with with the family. So that's what I put a lot of my emphasis on. And my athletic goals, I guess, do suffer or my athletic endeavors do suffer a little bit because of that but that's you know one of the choices that we make in life the other thing I'd say is and it comes back to this reassessing your goals a little bit is play to your strengths if you still want to be competitive look at where you are most competitive when you're stretched for time I used to race a lot of multi-sport and adventure racing and I just really couldn't find the time to invest into that while still being competitive on that stage. So what I opted to do was to focus on mountain biking. And in particular, ultra-endurance mountain biking. I find that I can still be quite competitive in that. So it gives me that competitive, you know, that 
that that feeling of being competitive and that enjoyment of that competitive environment and being able to ride quite strong still on reduced training. Whereas if I was trying to race multi-sport and adventure racing like I used to, I probably couldn't be as competitive and I would have to put a lot more time into my training. So those are some bit of practical tips and tricks that I have used um, to help me train with a busy, busy family life, with the introduction of two kids into our lifestyle, and uh, and continually diminishing amount of time to invest into training. So if you've got kids or a really busy life, I hope that helps you with your training. I'd be very, very pleased to hear if you have any comments. What are some strategies that you use to get your training in when you've got a busy schedule lined up with kids' activities, school, after-school activities, how do you do it? I'd be very interested to hear. So that's Lessons From Life for today. Now we're going to jump into some Q&A from a listener that tackles animal versus plant protein. Let's have a listen to it. Hi, my name's Jono. I compete in spec ski and ocean ski. I'm a reasonably serious competitive athlete. I'm just curious as to what the balance should be between animal-based proteins and plant-based proteins. Animal-based proteins are complete, as you know, obviously. However, they come with negative health consequences such as saturated fats. Well, then plant-based proteins don't have these, but then they're less bioavailable and incomplete. What should our balance of daily protein take be from these things? Can an athlete truly be a vegan or strive to be vegetarian and try to cut out the meat products? Or will meat always be a key component in our diet? Thanks. Well, Jono, thanks for your question, mate. Now, this is an extremely interesting one. And to be honest, there is not really a recommendation out there with a balance of animal protein and plant-based protein. And you gave us a really good rundown on the differences between the two, so hopefully people learnt from that just in itself. But I will expand on that a little bit. So when we talk about complete proteins and incomplete proteins what a complete protein is is it is a protein that has all nine essential amino acids in it now what an essential amino acid is is it is an amino acid that cannot be made by the body it's essential we have to get it through food if we don't get it through food it cannot be made in the body now, depending on where you read, there's somewhere between 20 is the number that's often thrown around, thrown around, but now it's sort of been bumped up to 22 amino acids that make up our body. So there's 22 different Lego pieces that make up the human body. Nine of these pieces can only be gotten through food, whereas those other ones, once we consume a mix of amino acids, they are able to be produced on their own within the body so they're non-essential so as you pointed out 
animal proteins are complete. They have all nine essential amino acids in them. So when you put them into the body, along with the amino acid pool that's already in the body, we should be able to make any protein that is required. Now generally, there is the recommendation out there for endurance athletes that you should be having about 1 to 1.6 grams of protein per kg of body weight per day. So there's not there's no distinction between whether you should have animal protein or plant-based protein. When you eat protein, doesn't matter what source it is, once it's in your body and broken down into those little amino acids, that's what really really counts at the end of the day. So it doesn't matter whether you're getting it from animal sources or plant sources, as long as you're hitting that 1 to 1.6 grams of protein per kg of body weight per day for most endurance athletes that will be spot on. Now what about plant-based proteins? Many plant-based proteins are incomplete meaning that they don't have those all nine essential amino acids in them. However there are some plant foods or plant-based proteins that do contain all nine essential essential amino acids and and are therefore complete. So quinoa is a key one, which is a a complete protein. And in fact, a little side note for you, NASA are looking into raising it and how to grow quinoa because they're planning on using quinoa when they finally get interplanetary space travel happening. So quinoa in the future will probably be what people that are traveling to different planets are fed on because it is one a carbohydrate but two also a complete protein so quinoa if it's good enough for nasa's inter interplanetary space flights probably good enough for you to get your your uh, protein in there as well buckwheat soya uh, and soy are also complete proteins that are from plant sources so there are complete proteins that come from plant sources with that in mind, there's also a lot of incomplete plant proteins out there. Uh, so, But if you mix them together, such as rice and beans mixed together, the amino acid profile that you get from those that mix will give you complete protein breakdown once it's in your body. All nine essential amino acids are there. So coming back to the question, I guess, can an athlete function properly on plant-based proteins and the answer is yes we see it all the time there's a lot of vegan and and vegetarian athletes out there that aren't supplementing with uh, animal proteins obviously uh, vegetarian athletes may consume eggs and dairy which would you know give them those complete proteins there as well but there are many successful vegan athletes out there not just in the endurance world where you know, carbohydrates is the really important thing for the performance, but also in the strength and power world and even the bodybuilding world, which I guess you could argue where protein is the most important when it's all just about making more muscle. So at the end of the day, yes, you can, you know, function well as an endurance athlete. And like you said, you're a spec and a surf ski racer on on plant-based protein. It just requires a little more thinking up front I guess if you're not used 
to consuming plant-based proteins. And what I'd recommend is just having a nice variety of the different protein sources from plant foods so that you are getting that nice blend of different amino acids so you your the amino acid pool within your body is is ready to go whenever um, you know you need to make those different proteins within your body so I hope that helps um, if there are any vegan vegetarian athletes out there please leave a comment about your favorite blend of different plant-based proteins what do you use what's what do you find best what do you find works best after a really heavy training session potentially you know when there's been a lot of muscle damage whether it be a strength session really hard hill climb session a long race i would be very keen to hear uh you know some first-hand experience from vegan and vegetarian athletes out there i hope that helps answer your question Jono. please if you do have a question send me in a voice message, head over to the Exponential Performance Coaching website under the podcast tab, head down there and you just push the little record button, record your voice message, send it in, and as a way of saying thank you, I will send you a free copy of the Performance Temple Handbook series. Alrighty, mate, that is a wrap for this week's Exponential Performance Podcast. I hope you have, one, enjoyed it, and two, found it useful. My whole aim for this podcast is to provide practical, real-world information that is backed by science and also proven in the field so that you can use it to help you achieve your goals. If you have any questions or you have any topics that you'd like me to cover in future episodes, please head over to the Exponential Performance Coaching website, leave me a voice question over there, and I will get it on the show in future episodes. Finally, it would be greatly appreciated if you could head over to the iTunes website, Give this podcast a rating and also leave a little written review. It's just simply something that you enjoyed about the podcast. Something nice, quick, easy. It'll take you a couple of minutes and it will go such a long way to helping this show grow and become sustainable into the future. That's enough from me. I look forward to talking with you next week. But until then, get out there and train hard. But remember, train smart.